0: Psalm 51, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of righteousness, in burnt offerings offered then bulls will be offered on your altar Amen Stephen's going to come and open the scripture for us
1: it would be great if you could keep your Bibles open as we work through Psalm 51 together and let us pray as we hear God speak to us this morning Father, we ask that you would speak to us today in the power of your Holy Spirit for our good and for your glory. Amen. I wonder if you love things to be clean, to be clean shaven, to have clean benches in restaurants, to have clean hands. How many of us now carry hand sanitizer in our handbags? Or if we go to the hospital, everywhere you look, it's there hanging on the walls. Recently, the world quite literally has been swept by the Marie Kondo phenomenon of decluttering our homes. We all know that person whose room we can't enter because of the mess. And I'm sure there are some of us here who cringe on the inside when you have to ride in that car. You know the one where you have to clean all the filth off the seat before you get in and then when you get out you hope there's nothing stuck to you? I've got kids, I know all about it. (laughs) It's best if we just leave the kids' seats where they are. We love to be clean. Uh, But that's a problem when it comes to standing before the holy God. Because there's one thing that's consistent when it comes to the cleanliness on the inside And that is that we are all messy. We all stand guilty and condemned, muddied and stained by sin. We long to be clean before God, to avoid his condemnation, to be at peace with him. So we try and clean ourselves, but we only make things worse. It's a bit like those automatic v- robot vacuum cleaners that vacuum the carpet when you're out. I saw on YouTube the other week um, a video of it happening and while the owner was out, their dog came in and left a steamy brown pile in the lounge room and this vacuum cleaner picked it up and smeared it over every inch of the carpet in the house that's what it's like when we try and deal with our own sin we make it even worse well the way to be clean on the inside is through confession through confessing our sin to our heavenly father in prayer the prayer of confession is the only way to forgiveness to being clean I read a story the other day about a rich and powerful man who abused his position of authority to seduce a young woman. He then compounds his abuse of power by ordering a hit on this woman's husband. It might be the kind of story you'd expect to hear in dangerous parts of the world or by a particular sort of person, but for one startling fact, the man was an outspoken moral advocate. This man was honoured and revered and esteemed, especially by the people of God. It might have very easily flown under the radar except for a gutsy reporter of the truth who organised a very clever sting, a sting uh, designed to expose this powerful man for what he was, a cowardly, lustful and abusive man. And the sting went like this. Uh, the man was invited to a private meeting with with his with this respected reporter, one of his advisers, who then told him a story. And this is how the story goes that he told him: there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. When the rich abuser heard this story, he was enraged, insisting that this rich man must pay for the lamb four times over. And in fact, he ought to be put to death. Then Nathan, the prophet of God, said to King David, you are that man. I just read to you from 2 Samuel 12. The cowardly, lustful and abusive man was none other than King David. And that intrepid reporter of the truth was the prophet Nathan. For God had revealed to Nathan the treachery of of David recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and alluded to in the superscription of Psalm 51. And let me tell you a little bit about the background of this. Hot on the heels of God's incredible covenant with David in 2 Kings chapter 7 where God promised to him of, of giving him rest from every enemy of giving him the greatest name in the land, of establishing his throne and kingdom that will last forever. Right after these promises, David sends his men out to war while he relaxes on the rooftop of his palace. And there he sees the beautiful Bathsheba having a bath and he lusts after her, even after he knows that she is married. Power and wealth weren't enough for David. He wanted Bathsheba as well. And so David ends up sleeping with her and they conceive a child. All the while Bathsheba's Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is out fighting David's wars. In an attempt to cover it all up, David brings Uriah back from war to sleep with his wife to pretend that the child is his. But Uriah is too honourable for that. And so David goes even further smearing on the carpet even more as he conspires to get Uriah killed on the battlefield. And he does. Uriah dies alongside many more of David's soldiers. And this cover-up plan actually seems to have been a success. It looks like David has got away with it. Well, what might you expect David to do about this when Nathan comes and confronts him about his sin? When Nathan says to David, you are that man, maybe Nathan too will be met with an accident soon after. David's response is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 12 verse 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, David pens a beautiful poem of repentance. It is the cry of a guilty, broken man throwing himself onto the mercy of a holy God. He's fearful that God would withdraw his presence from him like he had his predecessor, King Saul. You might remember Saul had been stripped of the Holy Spirit and of his kingdom for much less than what David has done. In Psalm 51, David is at rock bottom. His relationship with God is in tatters and we'll see what it takes for this relationship to be restored. And to begin this road of reconciliation with God, it must start with conviction of sin. So join me in Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David's conviction of his sin recognises its extent. In verses 1 and 2, he uses three different words there to describe it, transgression, iniquity and sin. The sin word there is the more general word for for sin. It's about not measuring up to God's standard. It's like shooting an arrow at a target and and falling short every single time. God's perfection, even on our best day, with our best efforts, even with the wind behind our back, we will always come up short. In the words of Isaiah 64, 6, our good deeds are like filthy rags. Transgression is about law-breaking. This is like when you know the rules and you deliberately break them. You jump the fence that says trespassers will be prosecuted. It's transgression when we know not to speed our cars or look at pornography or to love our money, but we do it anyway. And all of this happens because of the third word describing sin, iniquity. Iniquity is the depraved nature that we all have that drives us to selfishness at the expense of others. It's the twisted attitude in our hearts that doesn't care what hurt I might cause others. As my mouth fires out barbed wire designed to inflict pain. As I ignore the cries of help by the vulnerable in our society because I don't want to lose my own comfort. That's iniquity. As David recalls all these types of sin in his confession... He's teaching us that true confession of sin means examining our hearts with all of this in mind. In what ways have I come up short and been less than the holiness God requires of his children? That even my good works are not good enough to meet his standard? What laws of God have I deliberately broken? How have I intentionally hurt someone in my thought, in my words, in my deeds, my lack of deeds?" You see, sin is much more than just doing wrong stuff. Way more than just breaking God's laws. It's a disease in our blood. It is something that is terminal. It's something that controls us every moment of every day. Verse 5 says it's something we're born with. Sin is not just an accidental one-off, a lapse of judgment, something that the real me doesn't do. No, that is me. And it is horrible. There's nothing I can do about it. We can't get rid of sin ourselves. We only make it worse. Our only hope is the grace of God as we come before him in confession, in repentance. And do you see in verse 3 how David's sin plagues him? It is always before him, constantly in the forefront of his mind. It's making him feel like his bones have been crushed in verse 8. Have you ever experienced the pain of a broken bone? I have an older brother, I know this very well. I wonder if you feel this way with your sin. You feel like you've been hit by a truck. As your mind keeps playing it over and over and over, like you know the most hated song that you know stuck on repeat, you just can 't get it out of your head, but in all of the guilt that racks David in his atrocious sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, against his household and his family, against the men who died next to Uriah in battle and their families against the whole nation of Israel, amongst all of that. David makes a startling acknowledgement in verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned. David zeroes in on the heart of all sin. Ultimately, sin is always an offence against God. In the same way, the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, as he went around persecuting the church, When Jesus appeared to him in the vision, Jesus says to him, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus had ascended into heaven long before he said that. As we sin against others, including our sinful thoughts that we think will hurt no one, it is all against God. And what David found as he succumbed to sin in his pursuit of the good life He found himself alienated from the giver of life. This is the universal experience for all of us. Our sin alienates us from God. So David cries out to God to wash him clean, for God to blot out his sins, for God to radically reshape his heart in verse 10, for the Holy Spirit to be his constant companion in verse 12. Join me in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David knows he cannot remove his own sin. No heroic efforts, no amount of self-punishment or sweeping it under the carpet, no amount of denial or positive thinking. There is no detergent or scrubbing brush, no amount of good works to balance out the scales. And so David cries out to God to clean him. And first of all, with hyssop in verse 7. Now, hyssop is the bush that is used to sprinkle blood on the doorposts at Passover. It's used in the cleansing rituals for lepers um, or for people who have touched a dead person. David wants God to wash him clean. In verse 10, David needs God to do some recreating. You see the create word in there. It's, It's the same word that's in Genesis 1 where God created the heavens and earth. This create word in Hebrew, it always has God as its agent, as he brings something new into existence, whether it's from scratch or or through transformation. And the point of this being, as Spurgeon says, none but God can create either a new heart or a new earth. None but God can create either a new heart or a new earth. David needs God to give him a pure heart to renew him from the inside. When you are convicted with your sin, where do you turn? You turn to yourself and try and work harder, try and do more, do better to earn or justify God's favor. David knows our only hope rests In the hands of our merciful God. And what is just so beautiful is that God does not reject anyone who comes to him in confession. All who cry out for forgiveness are forgiven. God's precious promise to sinners like us in 1 John 1 verse 9 is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. From all unrighteousness. What a promise. God's answer to you as you confess your sin is yes. Always yes, yes, yes. God does not reject a humble and repentant heart. Are you a confessor? Are you a sin confessing believer? I'm not suggesting you need to be morbid about it, nor obsess in an unhealthy way about your sin, but do you feel the weight of it? Like David did, like your bones are crushed, the joy of your salvation evaporated. This weight of sin is lifted only through confession. Confession is the pathway to freedom, where we can live with clean hands and a pure heart, And have a right relationship with God. Now David knew that the sacrificial system that they had could not cope with his sin. In verse 16, David says that God is not pleased with sacrifices and burnt offerings. He is pleased by a broken spirit, a contrite heart, a genuine prayer of confession. In faith, David was looking forward to God's future provision of God's temple that hadn't been built at that time but would one day stand in Jerusalem where righteous sacrifices would be offered to God so verse 18 David says may it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole then bulls will be offered on your altar In faith, David was anticipating the sacrifice that really would take away his sin. The promise of pure blood to wash us whiter than snow. Just like all the men and women of faith in Old Testament times. They saw this only in fleeting shadows and basic signposts. But in faith, they trusted in God's coming son. They trusted in Jesus, the real temple of God. Jesus, the real sacrificial lamb who would shed his blood once for all to take away our sins, to cleanse and purify us, to blot out all our guilt and restore the joy of salvation to us as he comes and lives with us. David's sin, our sin, cost God his own son. Jesus had to die so that we could be forgiven. And that's what David was looking forward to. And for us who live on this side of the cross, well, God's mercy is no no secret. What David could only look forward to in inadequate symbols, we can look back to with an unshaken hope. And we now experience the fullness of joy that his presence, that his Holy Spirit guarantees as he lives in us by faith. David's fear that God would withdraw from him and take his Holy Spirit away is not a fear that we have this side of the cross. Before Jesus came, only the Israelite king and the prophets had the Spirit of God living in them. But today... Under the new covenant, God's spirit has been poured out on all humanity. All men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, young and old, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We do not live in fear anymore that God will abandon us. Isn't that what Jesus says? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age. And so David lived in faith looking forward to the cross of Jesus where his sin is atoned for, where his sin is removed, he is washed. What a beautiful thing that our God has done for us. I want you to come and see now the only true and inevitable response to God's grace in forgiveness from verse 13. David writes, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. I will teach, I will sing, my mouth will declare The fruit of forgiveness will always be celebration. Worship will always flow out of grace. Ministry will be the inevitable outcome of God's compassion. So as we come to God in prayers of confession, as we cry out to God for mercy, trust in the blood of Jesus who purifies us from all unrighteousness. And let his bountiful grace overflow from your heart, out of your lips, into your hands and your feet, to the praise of the glory of our Saviour. Be motivated in ministry, in your serving of God and his church by grace. And let us encourage each other as we do this by reminding ourselves of this glorious gospel, of our holy God who who came in flesh, who shed his blood for us that we might be forgiven. Let me lead us now in a prayer of confession. And if you agree with me, join in with a hearty amen at the end. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Father of all mercies, the only holy and righteous one, you know our hearts. You know our sin. We have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We have broken your holy laws. We have sought to harm others. We have sinned in thought, word and deed and failing to act when we should. We are sorry and we repent. According to your faithful love, your abundant compassion, have mercy on us. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us and restore to us the joy of salvation. Motivate our worship by your grace through our only hope, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, whose blood was shed that we might be forgiven. And his people said, Amen.